so today we have a really um, great opportunity to hear from a man who is really making an impact, not just um, in Southern California where he pastors a church, he and his wife, Ken and Eve Spicer, but um, they have a great work also internationally. And uh, I'm so thankful, you know, I can say a lot of things about ministry, but I just want to say the most important thing that I've learned is uh, there's a friendship there. How many know God sets us up with true and genuine friendship when he's trying to take us into new places of life and ministry? Uh, And so I just appreciate and value the relationship that Tracy and I've had with Ken and Eve Spicer. Uh, Sam is here, his son with him, sporting the team since Eve was unable to make it. So Sam, why don't you stand so I can introduce you. Sam Spicer, come on. Sam is a uh, true OU fan, and we were able... See, you all had to be so carnal. Just had to be so carnal. Uh, But we were able to uh, ship him off to the game yesterday, and he had some great seats and was able to go and see Bedlam. So congrats to him. So Ken, why don't you come? Pastor Ken Spicer. Listen, I, I really want you to give it up. A destiny welcome for Pastor Ken as he comes and brings the word. Good morning. Yesterday was Sam's first OU game. He was born in Tulsa when we were going to college over there, and uh, so he's always reminding our other two kids that he is the only Oklahoman in the family, Uh, but he had a great time. It's so good to be here and, and just... I'm so blessed by your pastors and their friendship, and of course, they're on our board of directors for our ministry, so they're, you know, you literally are helping shape the direction of New Creation Church in California, and it just means a ton, and it's so good to be here, and like I was telling Pastor Lawrence, I just sense for you, because I do pray for you, and I pray for the ministry, and I pray for the school, and I pray for your families, and I just really sense that in these coming months, Destiny Church is going to tap into an entirely new level of effectiveness. And I know it's, it's hard to understand that because you're so effective at what you do already. And I, I'm not talking about church growth or financial increase, even though I think those will probably be part of that. But effectiveness is literally being able to communicate more clearly what God is doing and wants to do in the lives of people. So just get ready for that. And I'm excited for the, the Pledge Sunday next week. I, you know, it's such an, an interesting thing when you get around different flows of, of church in the world, but it's always so wonderful to be around people that don't give because they feel they have to. They don't give because they're afraid God's going to curse them if they don't. But we give from a sense of purpose, and we give from a sense of that we are the blessed of God, and we are here for a purpose, and we are here to touch the nations. And so it's just so awesome to be with you. Since I was with you last year, uh, we built a church in uh, the Luzon province of the Philippines, a place called Belair. Uh, We did that last spring, and then we um, built a school in 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 the country of Burundi, which is one of the poorest places on earth, by the way. And just seeing some amazing things happen with a church that we helped build the year before that, or two years before that. So now they, they have a school, much like you do. So they go into these places, which is literally in the middle of nowhere. It's three hours off the beaten path. And uh, I remember when we were driving out, one of the, the ministers said, we're just so thankful that you would, that you would come here. And I, and, I, and I just said, listen, I just hope 
God can find this place. <laughs> I don't want to get way out there and him not be there. Um, but it was just absolutely an amazing thing. So their school, they, we built a school a couple of years ago with the church, and it filled up, and people, I mean, these are, some are Muslim, some are, you know, have no belief, and then, of course, some are, are, are believers, but the place is exploding. So now they've got actually electricity, they actually have running water, and paved roads are coming to this place, all because of this church. Uh, and it's just amazing to see. And then, of course, last summer, we also had our very first Bible college graduation in uh, Guatemala City, Guatemala, and so we're excited about that work. We've, we graduated 15 students who are, some are already pastoring churches, and uh, it's just an amazing thing to be part of. Uh, and then uh, we just surpassed 1,000 graduates in our Bible college in Uganda. Uh, and so we're very excited about what God has allowed us to do in the nations and, uh, and, of course, you all, through your pastors, are, are a very big part of that. Uh, and I just want to also say to, to, to Didi, who's watching today, and Edie, your daughter, and, and, and you know, those that I've gotten to know, I, I, I know um, them very well. But I just want to say this, that I'm reminded, because we all face things from time to time, and I'm reminded of, of the, woman, or the, uh, the man that was healed at the Gate Beautiful. And then all of the hubbub that ensued after that, and Peter recognized that those people thought that had happened because he was an apostle. And he said, listen, this did not happen because of me, but it's that name and faith in that name that has made this man well. So let me just tell you that it's, it's not as hard as we've made it out to be. It is that name that is above every name that at that name... Now, not, at the, not at the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh, but at that name. When we evoke that name, it is Jesus in the flesh, and at that name, every knee will bow. The knee of cancer, the knee of depression, the knee of suicide, the knee of all these things that can seem so insurmountable. So just be encouraged uh, that God is very much on the throne. Amen. Charlie, I love you, and I'm praying with your family uh, daily. Well, uh, we're going to get into something today that I hope is going to encourage you, and what I'd like to do is, is just talk about this concept of clarity. And just like Chris was saying a moment ago, if our hearts are going to be open to what God wants to do in our lives, then our mind has to be engaged in that process. We must understand and be able to uh, acknowledge God's purpose and plan. And there's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about believing. And I've been teaching a series actually on the faith that moves mountains for several weeks at our church on Sunday morning. But there's also just as many on knowing. Like God wants you to know Him. He wants you to know His purpose. He wants you to know His desire for you and for me. And you know, there's this there's this idea that sort of floats through church sometimes that, well, you just never know what God's going to do. And, you know, I just don't like that because Paul said the mystery that used to be concealed has now been revealed. God does not want you to walk around in this ambiguous place of not knowing your father. Wouldn't it be so sad if our children didn't know our love for them? Wouldn't it be so sad if our children, like when, when Faith runs into the building across the way and, and if she thought that her father and mother were going to disown her, wouldn't that be a sad thing to think? Uh, 
and, and of course it would be, and we don't think like that, but yet we ascribe that kind of thing to God, who is far greater than us. That we think he, it's okay to, 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 to paint him as a figure that is not as loving for his children as we are for ours. And I came to tell you something today that God wants you to have clarity where he's concerned and where your life is concerned in relation to him. So let me give you the definition of clarity as I see it. It's understanding, it's perception, it's focus, it's freedom from ambiguity, it's to have knowledge or to comprehend. There's actually a doctrine out there uh, of clarity of Scripture, to, to, to have clarity of understanding where the Scripture is concerned. And believe it or not, it's called perspicuity of Scripture. Now already, you know, and I was raised in Mississippi, uh, already that seems a bit unclear to me. <laughs> so this is a, a theologian's definition of, of clarity. So let me just read it to you here. The doctrine of clarity of Scripture, often called the perspicuity of Scripture, is a Protestant Christian position teaching that those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that no, not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Let's just go home. <laughs> Even the definition of clarity is confusing. God is simple. Jesus didn't come and teach in a Bible college. He came and talked to farmers and fishermen in means they understood. And God wants us, you and I, to be clear about his heart for us. And that we can have every confidence in knowing that he is way better than we've been told. And so the importance of this clarity is what I'm going to hit on today. Let me show you a quick video. It's just about a, a minute long, but pay very close attention, please. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? No! We can get so focused on trying to do the right thing in life that we miss what God is doing. Is that right? I mean, it, we can get so focused that we can see what we think we're supposed to see, but yet we can also get so focused on the things that we think are important on the backside of that concept that we miss what God is doing. He could be right in the midst of something and we're begging God to come and do what he already said he's done. And I think it's interesting when we think about this concept of clarity. Um, and what we believe about that. So how we think and what we think about God determines what we believe. And if we believe that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, then that means we believe we can do all things. 
whatever God would call us to do. Now understand that, that we can be distracted with things that he's not necessarily inviting us to do, and this is sometimes a difficult thing, uh, because as your pastor has, has taught me, that you know, an opportunity that's not you know, in line with our purpose just becomes a distraction, so I get that piece, but at the same time, there's nothing you can't do with God who strengthens you. The verse in 2 Peter 1, 2, and 2 through 4, take a look at this. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. So now we're talking about what we understand about the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. As his divine power has given to us all things, somebody say all things, that pertain to life and godliness. So he's already made available every single thing you and I need to, to live life to the full for him and his, in, in his divine calling for us. Watch how that happens. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, by this knowledge, we have been given, uh, which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may partake of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So when we have a knowledge of God, when we have this clarity of who he is, do you know that the definition of idolatry is, is raising up a false image? And do you know what happens, unfortunately, all over the world every time people talk about God? Because sometimes there is a false image of him put forth that we say, well, you know, you better be careful because God's going to punish you if you do this. Or you better be careful because if you're not sure, you know, th there could be some ramifications as far as God is concerned with you. And I struggle with that, and, and you'll see a little bit more of what I'm talking about as we go today. But God came, well, Jesus came as God in the flesh to show us the Father. Before Jesus came, every aspect of God was already in the earth. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. We could go on and on. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. But yet when Jesus came, he only ever called God Father. He came to reveal the Father. And in the Father is all of these things. This provider, protector, healer. All these things are encapsulated in the concept of God as loving and good Father. And we sing the song, but if we're not careful, we walk out with a tainted view of what that really means. God is a good daddy. He wants us, by the Spirit of God, shed abroad in our hearts to cry out, Abba, when we need Him. To cry out, Abba, in relationship with Him. And it's an amazing concept. And, and, and even when he was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still only ever called him Father. You know, we've spent a lot of seminary time and cemetery time trying to decide and decipher what Jesus meant by saying God has forsaken him. Well, you know, he became sin and, and God can't look at sin and so that must be what that meant. Well, he looks at you every day. Well, you know, God, uh, God, he couldn't die if God didn't cut him off, and so he had to turn away. You know, we've just made all these convoluted things that there's no basis for, but in Jesus' day, there were no numbers on the Psalms. So if you were going to reference a Psalm, you would either quote or sing the first verse. And when Jesus said in front of 
God and everybody, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not saying God has forsaken me. He is saying, get your Bibles out and turn to Psalm 22. Because in that Psalm, it begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David is writing this. And what he essentially is saying in this Psalm is, even when it looks like I've been forsaken, my father can never forsake his own. He will never turn his back on you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never forget you. And then it ends by saying, it is finished. So what Jesus was saying is, you are watching Psalm 22, and what you are seeing is not forsakenness. What you are seeing is faithfulness of a loving father to do something only he can do for you who couldn't do it for yourself. Isn't that wonderful? Man. So there's a woman named Carol Dweck who's a, a psychologist at, um, at Stanford, and she wrote a book called Mindset, the psychology of, uh, the new psychology of success. And what she did is she began to do research and try to figure out why some people respond differently, why some fare better or worse than others in life. And essentially she came down to a mindset is the real difference and everybody typically just falls to one or the other either a fixed mindset or a growth mindset and so you know the age-old question in leadership is it nurture or nature are you born with it or can it be developed over time and so the fixed mindset says that just my my basic abilities are all sort of set in stone and there's nothing I can do to make them better or to develop them any further. So if I've only got a few of these things, boy, I better be really good at those few things. And what she found is that people who adopt a fixed mindset are always consumed with this idea that I've got to prove my abilities and prove myself. And everything that I do is sort of this, this, you know, this, this judgment over me and how good I am, how smart I am. Am I going to look dumb or I'm going to look smart? Am I going to succeed or fail? What is this situation going to portend for me? And that's sort of the, the limitation of a fixed mentality, a fixed mindset. But the growth mindset believes that uh, even the initial talents and aptitudes of a person, their interests and temperaments, you kind of start where you are, but everything can be developed and, and, and you know, uh, improved on, and through time and method and investment, you can get smarter, you can get better. I'm, a, I'm living proof. I went to public school in the state of Mississippi, which has been holding down the 50th spot in education since there were 50. And now I can read, I can do a little bit of math without taking my shoes off, right? And so I know that you can get smarter, you can get better, you can grow and be more adapt at certain things. And so she writes this, scientists are learning that people have more capacity for lifelong learning and brain development than they ever thought. So if that's true about us and we have this ability to adopt a certain mindset about ourselves, which is going to enable us to grow and succeed in certain things in life from a natural standpoint, then how much more important to have this clarity of understanding where God is concerned in relation to us.
it's vitally important to where he's trying to take us. So in a growth environment, because when we have a growth mentality, it creates this environment to grow. You know, in almost entirely last year, we spoke on this idea of dream big, and I probably talked to you about it at some point because we were getting ready to launch that last year when I was here. But just encouraging people to dream, encouraging people to start something, encouraging people to, to you know, start a business, write a book, write a song, choreograph a dance, whatever is in you, there's something inside of each one of us, us that God wants to pull out for the betterment of other people. And so we, we did a whole seminar, we preached you know, probably eight months on this, people started businesses, they've written books, lots of things have come out of that, and so we're just trying to keep that that, that, you know, that creativity going. As a result, we're drawing more young adults than we've ever seen in our church. You know, statistically, the church in America is losing every kid from 18 to 30. And that's the fastest growing demographic in our church because we're trying to create an environment of growth, a, a, an environment of, hey, listen, you're going to fail. If you're not failing, you're not trying. You should be a tremendous failure. Because failure isn't fatal. The fear of failure, failure, however, and that's where this fixed mindset comes in, a fixed mindset person is afraid to fail, so they're afraid to start. Because they're afraid if they fail, that is some kind of an indictment on their ability, their intellect, their, you know, their, their person. You know, my wife and I, a couple of years ago, started a furniture store in our town. And man, it failed miserably. But I don't think I could have gotten a, 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 an MBA and learned more about business. What to do, what not to do. So we're getting ready to start something else this year. And we're just never going to stop starting things because God is challenging us to live fully, not to live safe. Jesus didn't die to keep me safe. He died to make me dangerous, dangerous to the status quo that tries to hem me in. God made you a vessel of change in the earth. So in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, the Holy Spirit says this through Paul, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts. You know, that verse in Proverbs 4.23 that says, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. You know how you guard your heart? To rest in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's the peace of God that guards our heart. It's the rest. I was telling Pastor Lawrence the other day, we were driving around on his golf cart, and I was just telling him recently the Lord just revealed to me this idea of Balaam and if you remember the story of Balaam, he went up on the hillside. The king Balak of the Moabites had hired him to curse Israel. So he goes up on the, on the hillside. He was getting paid to, to pronounce a curse over them. He looked out on the camp, and he could only speak a blessing. He goes back and says, listen, you can't curse what God has blessed. This is where I, I rub with the deliverance ministers. You know, well, my great-granddaddy was an alcoholic, and so I've got that spirit on me, and blah, blah, blah. No, you don't. Not if you're born again. You, you, you've been born into a new family. You've got a new genealogy. Stop claiming the lie of the devil. You are not cursed. You are blessed. And if you're not clear about it, you'll walk like you're cursed. You'll think like you're cursed. You'll expect like you're cursed, but you're not cursed. So anyway, after three times, he comes back, and he, the very third time, he pronounced the greatest blessing over Israel. 
And what the Lord showed me is that Israel is there as a camp at rest. And you've seen the pictures of the tabernacle in the wilderness and they, how they would camp. They, it looked like a cross from up above. And they're all orientated to the tabernacle, which is the presence of God. And as they looked at the tabernacle, every article inside the tabernacle was a symbol, was a type of the finished work of Jesus, but a different aspect of it. So from their vantage points, they're looking at a different aspect of the finished work, and they're all orientated in. And let me tell you something, they weren't thinking about the devil up on the mountaintop trying to curse them. They weren't thinking about the enemy out in the hills trying to destroy them. They were focused and resting in who Christ is, and when you're at rest, you can't be defeated. And so it's important to know that when we're resting in who he is, the enemy's vanquished. The greatest spiritual warfare you will engage in is not rebuking the devil, which I've done a, I've done a fair amount of. I mean, I'll go old school and start pleading the blood. I'm not against any of that. But the greatest thing we'll ever do to be victorious spiritually is to rest in what Jesus has already done. Amen? And out of that rest comes a great deal of action a great deal of purpose, a great deal of living, but it won't be because we're trying to make it happen. It'll be because we realize God has opened the door and made all things available to us that pertain to life and godliness. So there's three things we experience in a growth environment. I want to be on time because they say, blessed is the short-winded for he shall be invited back. So there's three things that we experience in a growth environment. Number one is empowerment. We are empowered in a growth environment. We want people to know that you cannot fail. Even when you fail, you don't fail, because you learn, you assimilate, you, you, you contemplate, you come out better than you were. And in Deuteronomy 31, verse six, the Bible says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you, he will not leave you nor forsake you. You know, when we really know that, it causes us to be empowered. It causes us to realize we don't have to deflect, we don't have to um, represent ourselves, we don't have to somehow look like we're perfect. Some people have told me, Ken, you gotta stop being so transparent with people. Uh, you know, I was brought up under the, the concept in ministry that you never showed any weakness, you never let on like you had any failure, because you know the people are going to disrespect you if that's how you look. And what I found is just the opposite, that when people know you're just, you know, you know, for instance, let me say it this way, this is how I normally process it, I'm not any more ordained to live it than anybody else. I may be ordained to, to teach it, and, and some people would even question that. But I'm not ordained to live it any more than anybody else. We're all walking this out together. And I think it's important to know that. Uh, Carol Dweck in her book, Mindset, what she did is she did a study and there were some students in Hong Kong and they were in school, in university, and everything that they engaged with was written in English. And they were deficient in English. But they wouldn't take an English class to get better at English because they didn't want to look deficient. They wanted to maintain this idea that they just had it all together, and so they were engaged in a fixed mentality. So what happens is when we know God loves us in spite of us with a one-way descending love that has nothing to do with us necessarily, but his decision to love us, because love is not a feeling, it's a decision, right? So when God decided to love us, 
when we recognize that that means all of us and every part of us, then we can be free to be us. You know, there's a guy that I read sometimes, his name is Dr. Steve Brown, he's a PhD, lives in Florida, travels around preaching, and he wrote a book, and uh, in the book he describes the fact that he's teaching at a, at a denominational conference from his denomination, and some guy comes up after, and he says, listen, I got a problem with you. And he goes, I'd like to talk to you about it. And he said, well, I'd like not to. And he said, well, you're not, really not going to talk to a fellow pastor about what I think about you? And he goes, well, I really don't want to, but if you'll keep it brief, I, I'll, I'll give you a couple of minutes. The guy said, I think you're rude and arrogant and, you know, some other things. And he said normally he would just sort of defend himself and, you know, argue this guy into a, a paper sack. He said he's very good at, at argument and debate and things like that. But he said, it just something came over me, and I said, well... Bingo, you've read me well. And he said the guy didn't know what to say. He said when he just decided to stop defending himself, it was a great liberating thing that he experienced. And, 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 and he goes, man, if you'd have known me five years ago, you'd really be grieved. <laughs> he said, I'm selfish, and my, and my mother's always said it, and my wife agrees. You know, I got all these issues, and he just, he said, I felt so good about saying bingo to this guy that I just started calling it the bingo retort. And every time somebody criticized me, I said, yes, you're absolutely right. Well, I don't think you're fit to be a pastor. You know, I agree. I've told the Lord that many times. <laughs> See, we run around like we've got to pretend to be somebody without any issues. And that, that alienates us from people that need help. And, and, it, and it alienates us from the help that God provides us when we are honest about our deficiency. Let me go back over this. He will neither leave you nor forsake you. Do you know that there's a hoax in church that says when you get into sin, God will leave you? That when you have problems, God can't be around that, so he separates from you? I, man, I struggle with that stuff. And, and not well either. I mean, I struggle like by, by, by addressing it and not always in, in as much love as I would like. Because my father and your father, I'm talking about the God of the Bible. Paul said it this way in Acts, or in Romans 8:38 and 39, "For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm sorry. But you ain't bad enough to run your daddy off from you. Well, you know, God can't be a part of that mess. Oh, God is part of that mess. He's all up in that mess. He's all up in it. And what we do is we lie to people because we don't want them to think we're validating their lifestyle. And somehow we want to make sure we distance from that lifestyle, which I get, but it's not true. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When you know that, there is not, listen, there has been untold numbers of fights on playgrounds around the world because there was some snotty-nosed little kid who had his big brother there on the playground somewhere. Are you listening to me? When you know your father will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter what you've done to deserve that, you are empowered to live life to the full. You'll get up, you'll dust off. And by the way, that concept does not make people want to go live in sin. 
and that's what people will tell. I get told all the time, now, Pastor Ken, you got you to settle that down now because people will go live like hell. What I found out mostly around the world, people are living like hell anyway, and it ain't my fault. And it's not God's fault. <laughs> so if you figure if people are going to live like hell anyway, let's just make sure they know the road back, right? Let's make sure they know God hasn't cut them off. And, and so, so the Bible says, if we could just get biblical here for a moment, sin shall not have dominion over you because you're no longer under law but under grace. So actually being under the grace of God, which is unconditional love, and acceptance, not unconditional approval, by the way, but unconditional love and acceptance, and that means that when I have that mentality, the clarity in that, that my life will gravitate away from sin that so easily besets and liberate me into a life that's free from the condemnation and guilt of it all. Not that you're going to be perfect, because you won't, but God's not ever going to leave you. That's called empowerment. The second thing is enjoyment. We'll experience enjoyment. Do you know this ought to be fun? I, I mean, we have a place down in our neck of the woods called Disneyland. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. But there's a plaque on the wall there when you go in that says the happiest place on earth. And every time I see it, I want to rip it down. Because it's a lie. Because when you get in those lines that are an hour long to get on a ride, you're not happy. When you pay... $700 to get your family of four in the gate, you're not happy. It's a lie. But now when you understand who God is and how he thinks about you, that'll make you happy. We ought to be happy. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. I know you know these people. I'm related to a couple of them. Well, you know, it's just so, so hard. Really, because Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let's have some fun. Let's not be the first church of the frozen chosen. Man, let's cut loose. Let's enjoy the presence of God. In Matthew 25, you know the story of, of the, the talents. And of course, there was one with five and one with three and one with one. And, and we, we, we know the story, so I'm just going to jump right to the point here. In verse 24, after he's telling each of them, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful in a few things, I'll make you ruler over much, come into the joy of, of your Lord. It says, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. If you're hiding a talent, just as a little side note, Get off that talent and start letting it shine up in here. Amen? Yeah. Now watch this. So he was afraid. He was motivated by fear, and he refused to use what God gave him to bless, you know, the people around him, the world around him. But notice how it all happened. He said, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you. His mentality of the master was that he was a hard man. The other people knew him to be the Lord of joy, the Lord of increase, the master that was providing what they were going to invest. If you've ever been in church with a child and you give them a $5 bill to put in the offering, they love that. They become prolific givers with your money. They put it in, and then they're like this. I'd like to do that again. That was awesome. 
When we get the picture that God is the one giving to us to sow into our church, into our community, into our world, and it's not ours, we're just passing it along, we also become prolific givers, not just with our money, but with the talent, with, with the gifts that he's given us. But know this, this is why this is so important. If you know God to be harsh, unloving, unforgiving, a child abuser, you will be afraid to make a mistake. Therefore, you will never touch the world around you. You'll never touch the people that need it so desperately that you work with every single day because you'll be afraid to say it wrong, do it wrong, and then, of course, God will get mad at you if you don't. We need some clarity. We need to know him as a loving father. We need to know him as, a, as the one that says, hey, you can't lose. The only reason this one got into trouble is he failed to step out in the love of the father. We ought to be enjoying this, amen? Third and lastly, uh, to embodiment. We experience the embodiment of the, of the Lord. He, he inhabits us. Don't you know you are the temple of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says? To be the embodiment, embodiment is defined as the representation or expression of something in a tangible or visible way. You are the only Bible most people will ever read. You're the only Jesus most people will ever see. And so when we have a clear understanding of the love of the Father, then we can love people like he does. I always like the fact that he would, you know, just chastise the religious and then talk to the woman at the well. Jesus was either speaking hyper-law or hyper-grace. Hyper-law to the religious, making them hopefully see that they couldn't do what he was saying, but instead they ran off and made doctrines about how to do what he was saying, you know, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, he wasn't saying that to the church. He was saying it to Pharisees. He was saying it before he died. And let me just prove to you, because if you had to do that, before you got saved, you wouldn't be saved to this day. Let me, you want me to prove it to you? Well, I, well Pastor, I, 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 I tell you, I, I love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my mind and all my strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. Good. Everybody get out your ATM cards, because you're about to love me like you love yourself. I need, I need to go shopping today. It's Christmas time. So just get out your ATM cards and love me like you love yourself. If you would, just take a little piece of tape, put the pen number from your of your card on the back of it and then I'll send Sam around and we'll just collect them all because you love me like you love yourself right see what Jesus was hoping to get them to see is you can't do this without me later on John said we love because he first loved us see you can't love the Lord like you're supposed to or even your neighbor until you know God loved you in spite of you when you embrace who we really are, now we can love people. And so we love people. We have all kinds of people coming to our church and our community. And, and some, some people get a little nervous about their lifestyles. But this is what I realized. We don't change the message. We preach the Bible, but we love people. My job is not to change anybody or judge anybody. My, my job is to love people and show them the Father. Show them who he really is. And so that's called being the embodiment. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 8. But he also later on said, you are the light of the world. In Matthew 5, he goes in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
Sometimes all you can do is just love people through meeting their need. This year, to date, we have fed over 7,000 families in our community, the working poor, groceries every single week. It's just something that we do because we feel like there's a need and we want to touch that need and most of those people will never come to our church. We've done it for a few years and I know that because statistically they don't. But they show up every Wednesday for food. So we're able to share with them the love of God. Let me just say this, that God wants you and I to be clear about who he is, mostly because you're not dead yet. (laughs) Right? You're not dead yet. When David went down to face Goliath, he could have gone, man, are you serious? I got my whole life ahead of me. Why don't one of you cowardly soldiers go down and die for your country? But he didn't. See, God never intended Goliath to win. God put Goliath in David's way to be a gateway to David's destiny. There was no kingship until he defeated Goliath. Goliath's brothers weren't defeated by his cohorts until he defeated Goliath. Once he defeated Goliath, well, then lots of people. Remember the first time Tiger Woods lost? Well, then everybody thought, wow, he's beatable. Remember Buster Douglas? Of course not. But he's the first guy that ever defeated Mike Tyson. And as soon as he beat Mike Tyson, those dominoes begin to fall. Then everybody thought, well, he's beatable. Let me tell you something. The devil is already defeated. And when we know who our father is, we can embrace life like never before. And I'm telling you, we need to live it like there's no tomorrow. Take a look at this video. I want you to ponder these four questions. The first question to ponder when you go home is why? Why go this far? Why try to learn this much? Why study? Why put yourself out? Why try to earn as much as you can earn? Share as much as you can share? Why try to become all that you can possibly become? Why develop yourself to the full? Why try to do it all? Why try to take on this much responsibility? Develop every skill you possibly can. See every human you possibly can. Go to every class you possibly can. Touch everybody you possibly can. Why do that much? Why go that far? Why share that much? Why give that much away? Why try to see everything? Why try to do everything? Why try to become everything? The first question to ponder when you go home is why? Here's another good answer to why. It's the second question. Why not? Why not see how much you can earn? Why not see how much you can learn? Why not see how many skills you can develop? Why not see what kind of person you can become? Why not see what kind of influence you can have? Why not see how many people you can rescue from oblivion? I want you to take that personally. Why not? Why not? You've got to stay here till you go. I mean, what else are you going to do? Why not see how much you can do, how far you can go? Now, here's number three. Why not you? You've got the brains. You can make decisions. You can study the plan. You can change your life. You can grow immensely in the next few years. You can make your dreams come true. You can build a financial wall around your family. Nothing can get through. 
You can become healthy, you can become powerful. Why not you? My very last question on the questions to ponder is why not now? There never was a better time. And what a time now for us to take this dream and not let it die. Take this dream and give it life. Take this dream and breathe into it your own personal spirit until finally it becomes a flame that burns around the whole world. Let me just say today, if you need Jesus as your Savior and you've never done that before, then today's your opportunity. Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Notice he didn't love the church only, but he loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe. Somebody say believe. Not do, not act, not perform, but believe. Everything you'll ever do starts with what you believe. If you believe that, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe that today, right where you sit, you can be born again of the Spirit of God. That's the Bible. When Paul was asked, what must I do to be saved? He said to believe on the Lord Jesus in Acts 16, 31. And then he threw in a promise, and you and your house shall be saved. Notice, that was his point. That was his time. He could have said, you got to go to Pastor Lawrence's church. you got to give a bunch of money. You've got to, you know, do this and do that. You need to do certain things to get saved. But he didn't say that because he knew if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus, the doing won't be a problem. Believe on the Lord Jesus. If you believe today, you're born again according to the Bible. You say, but Pastor, we need to make a public confession. Oh, you will. When you fell in love in the third grade on the playground, you told everybody. My problem and my role isn't to get you to confess it in church. That's pretty easy. But when God touches your heart and you're in love with him, you'll tell somebody tomorrow morning at the coffee pot at work. Hey, I got to tell you what happened to me this week. I got to tell you about this Jesus that loves me unconditionally. Let me tell you about my father. It'll be the easiest time you've ever preached the gospel. Remember how you used to feel like you had to win an argument? You had to somehow debate somebody into submission? You just tell them about your daddy. My friend, Dr. Steve Brown, tells a story about a young man he taught in seminary, Justin Holcomb, who was now a, a pastor and leader in the church. And, and when Justin was about 10 years old, his neighbor, his friend, was moving away. So he didn't want them to sell their house. So he went and clogged up all their drains one day when they were, they were gone, and he flooded their house. And after a couple of days, the, his father found out. He, of course, asked him a few times, were you involved in this? He goes, no, Dad, I don't know why anybody would do something like that. And so then the... The jig was up, he found out that he actually did do it, and his father called him in, and he goes, look it, the neighbor told me he saw you coming out of the house that day. He goes, I'm very angry at you, Justin, because you lied to me, you lied to God, and you need to get your heart right with God and me. And he said, Daddy, ever since the day that happened, I've asked God to forgive me, I've prayed, and, just, and I just feel so, so badly about what I did. His father said, oh, you prayed? Well, that changes everything. You're forgiven. Go out and play. And Justin Holcomb says the first time he ever preached the gospel was when he went out and told his friends what his daddy had done. All you have to do is tell people what your daddy has done. If you got anything out of today, go out and play and be sure and tell them about your daddy.
Hallelujah. Pastor Lawrence.